Hey, so this is episode 12 of the Getting to Ramen podcast. And as you may have noticed, I've got my my sexy radio voice. Hello. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, I've got a cold, and so does the rest of my family, which is awesome. Um, but today, I will be sharing with you a conversation I had with Matt Wensing of SimSass. And... Uh, initially, the plan was to talk about SimSass in this conversation, uh, but we, we got into some, some really, really interesting stuff. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy it. What time do you usually start? Uh, I mean, my alarm went off this morning at 4.53, I think, something random like that. I was kind of a random number just before five have you always been <laughs> that early of a, a starter or like obviously i went through the teenage years of being a night owl and thinking that that was the coolest thing but then once i had kids you know, maybe <laughs> i maybe it was true that i could do either um but i remember for the entire time i was building my last company i just found this really awesome productivity at like as early in the morning as possible. And I had, I mean, I had, I had an infant basically. So like, what time do you get to work? <laughs> First of all, you work whenever you can. But second of all, like once they fall asleep, like four, five, six a.m. is kind of a wonderful window compared to like 10, 11, 12 or whatever, <laughs> any other time of day. So I would code, usually code for two to three hours per morning from five to eight. I've been doing that for probably 10 years or more. So that's, um, except for when I wasn't coding, but yes, as long as I'm coding, that's my preferred okay. schedule. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm in the same, in, a, in the same boat. Like I've got a two and a half year old and a six month old. So, so this morning wow, I, yep. I started at five thirty, but, uh, got to bed late and then was woke, woken up by the six month old at four thirty. So so it's that Ooh. right it's a very yeah. few hours, not a lot of hours of sleep it, it, when, when they're that young it's just survival and there's no i mean obviously it's all about what works best for you that was survival for me i had um four children i have four children um and and two startups now so i when i was first doing it um 10 years ago it was really hard to tell people that i had a family and was starting a startup because everybody it seemed like everybody else that I met at either Y Combinator or was going to tech stars or doing whatever, like they're just finished college. Kids are nowhere on their radar. Um, it was always like after I got to know them for a while, eventually it came out that I was married and I had a kid or kids and it was always like a shock. So, you know. yeah. Yeah. So did you start out in engineering then? Yeah. So, well, I, <laughs> I started out doing web I mean, I started out building websites in 1995 when HTML was really the only thing going. And then um, went to college, got a humanities degree, actually. Um, but I took a bunch of computer science courses with that because I was just fascinated by computer science. Um, and when I graduated, I kind of had this ability to go either way. And my first job was a web design job, but I just got really drawn into the development side when I realized just like how much more creative um, ability I would have if I could, if I, if I coded, not just if I made front ends look good or did the design work, but like if I can control the data that I have available to me on the screen, I will be able to do pretty much anything I want to. So that's, 
I, I got pulled in, right? The first startup that I was actually a part of was, uh, I wasn't a founder, I was a designer and it only lasted a few months, but I was, I was brought on as a designer because that was my core competency. That startup then um, closed down and I, w- I went back to just freelancing. Then I got a job, um, a real one, and the job was uh, web designer, not developer, but I noticed that a lot of the tools that my team had to work with were kind of inadequate, and I started to write code uh, just as a part of the job. And it was a big company, um, but it was a well-run big company. And the management there basically just said like, okay, you have both skills. We'd actually like to put you into a developer role instead of a design role so that you can do more cool stuff than you're doing in this design role. And I became a full-time developer as my day job at that point. Okay, okay. (laughs) How long after this, or what was kind of the journey towards wanting to start your own company? Uh, Yeah, so I, so this is like um, late summer of 2004. Uh, that I was working at this design, uh, in this design role full time before I became a developer. Um, and yeah, I was, I was, I was itching to do something. I found Paul Graham's uh, Hackers and Painters book, I think in 05, um, if not 04, basically as soon as it was published, I grabbed it off the bookshelf and said, okay, I, f- I feel like I'm a hacker and a painter. <laughs> this is really cool. What is this? And like, I just, I learned, I, I read that and I said, okay, I got to do something entrepreneurial. And I love, but I actually had a great job. So the, the weird thing was, is I wasn't unhappy in my job. I just wanted my own, I wanted my own thing. And I had tons of energy, it was like 20, 23 years old. So 15 years ago, I mean, more energy than I have now. And I'm like, I'm just going to do it all. So I started, I just started having ideas about what could I do? What could I do? And then, um, yeah, I came across weather data as I, I, I developed a belief that weather data was a really cool um, data set to work with. So when you talk about like weather on the internet in 2004, what that basically was is you would go to a, you go to your local news station website maybe, or weather.com. But if you wanted local information, you go to weather, new, you know, WPTV News Channel 5 website. And you, what you would get is you would actually get like a static image of like a weather forecast of, you know, rain clouds and sunshine in your area with like a temperature number written on it as, a, as literally a pixelated screenshot of the newscast that you missed. So like totally different world. So that's what triggered it. It was like, okay, this feels like a big opportunity to basically take something from static to interactive. And that, that was the the genesis of that idea. So then at what point did you decide to try and make this a product? It started out about hurricanes and um, hurricanes are very um, map centric. So you always want to see a hurricane on a map. You don't want to just see a bullet point list of like the latitude longitude position of a hurricane. Like you want to see a dot on a map. So as soon as I had to go from like an XML file, which is literally what I was publishing at the time. It was like an RSS feed, right, of data. As soon as I wanted to go from that to like, I want to see where this hurricane is, I basically, uh, I mean, I knew I had to create a mapping client. Um, and there were, no ma- there were no interactive mapping clients at the time. So um, like I said, MapQuest was not interactive. There's no interactive mapping client. Wow. So Ajax was just getting invented. 
So I, I saw Google Earth. Google Earth came out first versus Keyhole. And I don't remember back then, but like when Google Earth came out and people, could, like you had to download the software and run it on your desktop. But once you had that experience of like zooming into a map and out and moving around and like spinning the globe, I, it, was, it was like, I mean, for me, <laughs> it literally like, it, it kind of changed my professional life of like, I want to create stuff like this. Like, this is, this is what I want to make. Like this beautiful combination of like interactivity, data, exploration. I suddenly, I just had this realization, like, I want to create something like this. So I was like, well, what if I created like the weather tracking version of a Google earth application? Like, could I basically put weather on a Google Earth like application, which would be even better, right? Because then you're like, I'm like just the imagery of like the storms and the weather and all. Like, if I could do that, I would feel. I mean, it's it's kind of a it's a godlike thing. It's like you get to suddenly like look at this <laughs> this world of like you know how amazing that. Is. So I got really really excited about the vision of it, and I said I'm going to build that. But a couple of problems. One is um, Google Maps didn't even exist yet. So like nobody had done this in a web view, right? Um, and then Google Maps got launched right, like right after I started building mine. And I noticed how they were doing the tiling. And I asked my friend, the same one I had to serve from, like, dude, Isaac, Yitz, uh, Yitzhak. I was like, how, how are they doing that tiling thing? Like where it just brings the tiles up onto the, the screen. He's like, oh, that's an Ajax call. Let me, let me show you how that works. And I was like, oh. And so I was like, Okay, that's cool. So I, I once I knew how to do the tiling, I uh, set off to build my own interactive weather mapping application from scratch, um, and I did. So it took me two years to build, but I spent uh, I spent like three hours a day for two years building my own weather mapping application that was inter fully interactive, zoom in and out, pan, clouds severe weather, hurricane tracks, forecast models, interactive movies, like everything from scratch. And wow. I mean, it, that's a pretty <laughs> intense first product to try and tackle. Like, <laughs> you know, like, it was the vision, man. It's the vision. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I still have a tennis ball. This is a baseball, but like I still have a tennis ball somewhere in this house. And I moved like six times since then where I was like drawing the, um, would draw the latitude longitude. I had to learn about map projections, which was not, I was not a cartographer, but I, so I was like, how do I basically do map projections? How do I, and <laughs> I, so it's funny, like my original goal was to do a 3D version. So I actually was trying to draw 3D earth inside a web app. I spent about six months trying to do that. I was doing all kinds of crazy trigonometry inside this, inside this um, flash application actually. And they eventually gave up and said, fine, I'll settle for a 2D version. Well, once I settled for 2D, like it was, it was <laughs> at that point, it was easy. <laughs> that was just basic geometry. It was easy. <laughs> so it ended up being like 65,000 lines of action script. Wow, man. And, and so did you have a real interest in math, uh, prior to or did you do you know advanced math in school or was it just this is just learning as you go so, so that's, it's funny like i am i am not a i am not an anything 
Like I, I am, I love, I love learning about everything. There is no subject on earth that I will not have a one hour conversation with somebody about. I get obsessed with things and I learn, I go really, really, really deep. So when it comes to something as generic as math, like I, I mean, I'll be honest, like I, I was a straight A student in school, you know, one of those valedictorian kids had to go to the best college I could get into all of that. And I thought I was good at math. But then I went to college and I met like real math nerds, like mathlete nerds. And it was so discouraging because here I was like thinking I was good at, ah, I'm good at math. And then I met a friend who's like, his mom got a PhD from Caltech. His dad got a PhD from Ohio State. He's taking like discrete math in high school, you know, and doing linear algebra his first year in college. And here I am like struggling with honors calculus, right? So, like, so, so yeah, I felt really dumb. And I suddenly realized like, as a part of my journey, I am not a math. I'm, I'm not, I, apparently I'm not that like whatever he is, <laughs> like, I'm not that I'm never going to be that good at that. And, and same thing with computer science, man, like development. I realized at some point when I was taking like, you know, discrete math and logic and computability or, you know, CS 202 or whatever, like, I was like, I'm never going to understand algorithms or compilers the same way as some of these guys. Like, I'm just not, I just, it doesn't, something about this is not clicking in the way that it is for them. And I was like, I spent my, I spent most of my college years discouraged that like, (laughs) I was never going to be, I was never going to be anything because I was not something. I was just like, this kind of useless jack of all trades. <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm like, I like, I like art and I like engineering and I like math, but I'm not that good at math. I, I think I just kind of lucked out where it's like, it turns out that being a founder is actually, it's a job where it actually pays to be good at everything, but you don't have to be amazing at any one thing. And in fact, being amazing at any one thing can actually lead you astray because you you basically start to think that like this one thing that I'm really good at is the most important thing, right? And like, I'm just going to triple down on that. Well, then you end up like being a salesman that doesn't have a good product or you end up being an engineer that people don't actually want to use your stuff or it's, I'm glad entrepreneurship found me because I was able to suddenly use all of this breadth as opposed to like, I'm not going to beat out that guy for a job at Google, like not as an engineer, right? Like, you know, I'm just not Uh, the best. That's really encouraging to hear. I think like for myself and I, and I think it's probably more common amongst uh, people that are entrepreneurial, you kind of have this wide range of of things that you're interested in or that you're good at, but not you don't have this, um, I've heard it referred to as like a deep T where there's like, there's just this thing that you go really deep on. Yeah. So, so, so maybe, have you seen the chart, which is like, um, it's the journey of journey of acquiring knowledge in a, in a domain. And it's like the amount of knowledge you actually have, the amount of knowledge you think you have, and then the amount of knowledge that you know, you don't have. (laughs) And and if you graph all three of those, it's really interesting. Every time you enter a new space, let's say photography, right? As soon as you get into photography, you don't know anything and you know you don't know anything. And therefore, you know that you don't know anything as well. So you're all at zero, right? Well, amateur photographers are kind of the worst in some sense because they, they know a little bit. They don't know how little they know. 
but the <laughs> amount of stuff that there is to know that they don't know is still really, really big, right? So there's this ego of now this knowledge ego, which is like this local peak where you're like, I'm a good photographer and I know stuff, but like they've never really been in a dark room. They've not burnt a negative. They've never like washed a print. They have no idea how hard the craft really is. And then you, you so then at some point, like you hit this point of despair where you realize how little you know, and you still only know incrementally more than you used to, but the awareness, if you're lucky enough to cross this threshold, you suddenly enter the zone of like, you get mentors, you get, you hang around experts, you go to meetups. That's a good breakthrough, right? Because that breakthrough sets you up to like start proceeding through the rest of the journey. If you can be humble about it, which is like, oh, but there's so much more to know now. And like, now I know what to learn. And I guess my point in all that is to say, I think the danger with a generalist is if you haven't crossed that threshold in a number of areas, you you're not, you're, you're actually, you are naive, but you don't know you're naive and you make a ton of mistakes because you overestimate your skill set, You overestimate your, your knowledge and whatever. So I would recommend if you're a generalist, go get around specialists who can like humble you and show you how little you know, and then like try to learn a little bit more in each of those areas because then you're going to be really dangerous because like you can respect like if you're a generalist and you don't go through that you're going to lead a company and you're going to have a, a, a your your first engineer if you're lucky enough to have one is going to come to you and be like we can't do that on that timeline and you're like don't tell me that of course you can because like you think you know <laughs> right but if you go try it for a little while and realize how little you know you can take a more humble attitude which is like oh like you're really an expert I'm not, but I know I'm not, and I'm going to respect what you're saying, right? And I'm going to account for your expertise properly, right? <laughs> Which makes you a better leader. It makes you a better generalist. Makes you able to have it builds respect from your team. So like, there's a lot, a lot here, obviously. But like, anyway, that was a long, long, long so oh, speech. So I hope. Um, super, <laughs> super valuable. I'd love to know how uh, then Storm Pulse like how you monetize it, how, at what point does it become a business? So I did not monetize it before I quit my job. I quit my job because my manager at my job became my first investor. Okay. Um, I showed him what I was working on and he actually wrote a check. It was a loan investment, if you will, but basically a loan um, to the business. And I drew salary out of that for about 20 weeks, I want to say, something like that. Uh, so I had six months of runway. So I quit my job and started working on it full time. And I was like, I'm going to take this to market in those six months. And it's either going to take off or it's not. And that's what we did. We tried everything from advertising as a model because weather on the internet, what do you do with weather? Put ads right. on it, right? So I, I tried that. Um, I even sold my own banner ads back in the day. There's a long story of how we got distribution, but we went from basically like 12 people a day visiting the site, which was like friends and family to about... 250,000 people visiting the site every day. Um, sometimes a million people, 2 million people visiting the site on a day. <laughs> um, wow. But once we had that volume, we could do ads. So we, we made about $150,000, a little less than that uh, in a year on ads, which felt pretty good for two guys in a garage. Um, but we ended up, uh, Freemium came out in like 2007-ish, 2006. Evernote was like a big um, Phil Leibniz mm -hmm. and Evernote really like the freemium charge. And I said, oh, freemium, that's interesting because like I have 
I have like 6 million free users, but I'm not making much money. How do I can, how do I turn this into a premium offering? So I tried 395 people bought, I tried 895 a month people bought. Um, we, at that point we were making probably more like 250, 300,000 a year between the advertising and the subscriptions. Um, but then like I kind of hit a wall and I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? And like, I met Patrick McKenzie. I met some other folks like Jason Cohen and they're like, raise your prices, raise your prices. Raise your. So I'm like, okay, I'll try to raise my prices. So I jumped, I tried 50 bucks a month, uh, lost some people, but people still bought. Then I tried 250 a month. People kept buying. Now we obviously had to keep improving the product, right? But right. we basically okay. kept raising the price. By the time I finished though, the whole journey, the whole you know, 15 year journey, if you will, was basically a story of building a more and more enterprise product and raising the price. So I, we, I basically, I, I have sold or experienced every price point from free to $35,000 a month oh at this point. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that's where we ended up. We, we, we ended up with a $30,000 per month enterprise solution on the same idea that I had when I was charging four bucks a month or actually giving away for free. Now, the product had to evolve a bunch. But fundamentally, the idea was the same is can we create a valuable tool for people when it comes to tracking the weather, right? Um, and yeah, yeah. So that's how we monetize it. So there's so much to dig into there. <laughs> we won't have, yeah, we're time. have to do a part, maybe a part two, maybe a part two. But that, <laughs> uh, believe it or not, that's, that's a true story. Um, I raised wow. $3 million in venture capital along the way to, to do that, to build the team. You know, once I raised the venture capital, I was able to build the enterprise version of this product, like a true, you know, platform is a pretty big rewrite of a lot of the pieces um, and ultimately, uh, ultimately built an enterprise version of it. And I got an enterprise sales. So I start, I started selling the product. Okay. I remember my mm -hmm. first, yeah, I remember my first $3,000 a year deal. I remember my first $8,000 a year deal. So these are all annual first $8,000, first $10,000, first 20000 36,000, 40,000, 60,000, 90,000, 120,000, 150,000, 180,000, 250,000, 360,000, or $430,000 deal, right? Oh. Like basically just kept selling, yeah. right? Wow. And like I learned what it takes to sell a deal at those price points. So, anyway, if you really want to fast forward, it's like, what the heck did I do with my life? I basically spent 15 years learning like what I feel like is kind of like every aspect of a market and a product at different price points. Like I, I feel like I did one startup, but I really feel like I did five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that's Absolutely. not one company, right? That's like, no. you know, it's, it's kind of bizarre. It's like, you know, the, the, yeah, it, it was, I, I had to learn, you know, I, I so, but by the, by the end of it, I was, you know, um, by the end of my entrepreneurial journey with that company, I was doing things like, you know, getting on a flight at 5 a.m., landing in New York, renting a car, or driving up in terrible weather, you know, getting on a flight, hopping, you know, a thing to nor upstate New York to meet a company that was like a billion dollar company, spend one hour doing a demo with them, and then get right back into the rental car, drive myself back home and come back home that night. So I was doing total enterprise sales where like you would literally travel... <laughs> 4,000 miles in one day just to do a one hour demo in person. Right. So oh, yeah, that's yeah. where I ended up. That's where I ended up 
but I started out <laughs> building a enter your username and password to get free access to this tool that I'm building <laughs> in my yeah, kid's so bedroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. So there's a lot of different pieces that I'd love to dig into, but I think that the part that would be really uh, like the most interesting to me is how did you how did you what was the process that you kind of took or the philosophy that you used to identify how the product needed to evolve so that you could then mm -hmm. first of all like charge it all and then charge yeah. and then continue to charge all the way through to the enterprise like what was that process like of evolving the product yeah um well it, it really was um first it was myself and some personas that i'd written down because nobody was using it okay then it was you know, a couple dozen friends and family giving me feedback. But then we had this explosion of usage in 2008, where we went from basically maybe 100 people per day using it to a couple hundred thousand per day using it in a, in a period of a month. Wow. So and that was organic month, or was it? So there was a growth hack in there. We ended up, um, we ended up allowing newspapers, TV stations, and any other website to put our weather maps on their website. And we, we and in exchange for that, for free, they had to put a link back to our website. Like they would embed the JavaScript, right? Yeah. And it would pop in there like a Google map. But then there was a link that said like powered by Storm Pulse. And so we were, we were, on, every, we were on over 400 media outlets websites um, from you know, local ones that you've never heard of to USA Today, CNN actually had us on the air and on, you know, um, USA Today had us on their website. So we we had this explosion of referral traffic and wow. and a hurricane came at the same time. Uh, it, came to, <laughs> it hit Houston at this time. So wow. our traffic just doubled. So I remember the days of worrying about like, where, are the servers going to melt down? Like what the heck is going on here? Because our traffic literally doubled every day from that number of like 100 to 2 million visitors in a single day how long does it take to get from 100 to 2 million it's like well two to the power of 30 or something like it, it's not it doesn't take long if you're doubling every day it literally does not take long and that's basically i've got a graph that wow. like does this once we hit that number we kind of just stayed now it dropped off once a hurricane went away we dropped off but there was now two million new people who knew about this amazing weather website and like 10 percent of them stick around every day like they did not want to leave. <laughs> like they just kept coming back, coming back. So now I had 200,000 regular, you know, monthly active users um, to talk to. And some of them were, some of them were me and you, some of them were fishermen, some of them were, you know, retired people, but some of them were the military. Some of them were, you know, airlines. Some of them were global companies. Some of them were NASA. Some of them were the White House. Wow. Some of them were the Air Force, the Pentagon. Like, uh, so did you, how did you reach out to them? Like to, to start conversations? I had all their email addresses cause they were registering a free account, um, or signing up for the cheap version. And so I would, um, I would, I just started emailing them out of blue, like, Hey, I noticed your email address in my, in my list here. Would you mind a short conversation? So I, I think I interviewed 50 to hundred different kinds of types of jobs and people and professions okay. and said, why do you use the site? What do you like about it? What else could it do for you? And, um, you know, took like two weeks or three weeks or whatever, but like, and this would happen, right? I would also get tons, like we had our email address at the bottom. We had millions of people. So we would get unsolicited emails right. constantly from people saying like, do this, do that, do the other thing. So I, we had a fire hose of 
feedback at that point um, to work with. So basically it's kind of shorter, the higher price points was every time I listened to a person that worked at a billion dollar company, mm-hmm. I was able to charge more money. <laughs> okay. Whenever I listened to a person that was like retired, it was great. It made the product more usable, but like there was no higher price points there. It was just like, it made it easier, better, whatever. And everybody appreciates that, by the way. It's not like the person at the billion dollar company wants a hard to use product. But as far as the pricing is concerned, if I did the thing that the guy at the billion dollar company wanted me to do, I could, I could double the price, right? Um, and that's what we did, basically. So I started listening to like, I started listening to like, what does ExxonMobil want? What does BP want? What does the military want? What does, you know, um, U- United States Steel Corporation and Pittsburgh want, right? Like when I started listening to those guys, <laughs> I could charge more money. Uh, and that's, that's basically what we did. So I got pulled into enterprise deals because our users were enterprise users, you know, logging in at their, at their work. Right. Um, and I would get emails from like people in the military saying, Hey, we just gave a briefing here at NASA and we put your, we put your site up on the big screen and like, we're using your stuff to talk through like shuttle recovery, whatever, whatever. I mean, I've got stories that go on forever. Like, um, this is true. (laughs) And I I still have the Gmail address to prove it, but like I, I was living in an alternate universe for a while. I took all that feedback. And we, we lost a lot of those users. As I kept raising the prices, at some point, users would have to say, okay, I'm out. Like, I can't afford, I can't afford a $500 a month weather solution. But then we developed things where it's like, okay, well, not everybody needs the $10,000 a year version. Like, mm-hmm. we had tiers and, you know, I had a lot, of, lot, of, lot of figuring out to do as far as how do you then package all that value for those different kinds of users right which was very difficult right so so when people say talk to customers <laughs> this is like <laughs> man and and oh yeah <laughs> and like i know that uh box did this uh very intentionally where they had a free version of the product so that they could get into these enterprise companies uh, where the employees were using it, and then mm-hmm. enough people used it that then the company would go, okay, everyone's using this anyways. Like let's let's just get the, right. the enterprise version. But you yep. like you kind of followed the customer feedback into this. Uh, like was it very intentional, yeah. or was it kind of like you just like taking it as you go and no, nothing? No, with my first startup, nothing was intentional because I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. Steve Blank hadn't written customer before since the epiphany yet. Eric Reese hadn't written Lean Startup yet. Um, Dave McClure hadn't come up with R yet. Paul Graham just started writing his essays. So um, everything was new. Like there was no there was no script or way of doing this stuff. It was just build something people want and figure it out. And that's that's all I knew how to do. Right. So um, I had to just respond to feedback and, and interview people and say like, what can I do? You know, um, to make you pay basically to get create enough value for you to pay for this. Right. And, um, that's what we had to do. So I just kept, just kept going. Wow. Okay. So you're talking to customers, um, how many people in like an enterprise role that asked for a certain product or a certain feature, um, Mm -hmm. how many did it take before you're like, okay, this is a feature that enough people need. Was it just like one or two? And you're like, okay, I should build this because these two customers will pay for it. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were really hungry. Right. So it, you know, and when, when a billion dollar company says that they want something, we, we would hope for two, 
but one was usually enough. So like if pick your company, I mean, um, Procter and Gamble was never a customer of ours, but if Procter and Gamble, who's makers of like Tide came to you and said, like, we want to use your web thing globally, but we need to have this feature, you know, and you figure out that they're willing to pay you $50,000, $100,000 for that. You just figure out a way to do it. And <laughs> Because, right, it's literally going to change your business. Like doing that one thing is going to change your entire business. And it's going to take a month or two months or three months to do. And you're going to have to focus a person on it. But then what the game you're playing with enterprise is always like, how do we make sure that this is not custom code? How do we make sure that we can reuse whatever this is for everybody else? Right. So what, yeah. I, what I would do is I would, take that, I would take that buying signal and say, cool, you know, I'm happy that you're willing to pay for this. I'm going to go talk to my team and come back and we would have conversations like, cool, Procter and Gamble, you know, wants this, they're going to pay for it. And they say like, Hey Matt, you're talking to hundreds of customers and you know, you've talked to hundreds of customers in the past. Like, do you think anybody, I'm like, I think that if we did it this way, we could use it. We could speak could package it up and sell it as this feature for all these other people. Right. Um, and and our, actually our last big moment of this was when we got into logistics. So when we got into logistics, we actually had, um, do you remember when it got, do you remember when it got really, really, really cold for the first time uh, in the United States in like 2014, 2013? Like they called the polar vortex, but basically like Chicago turned into like the planet Hoth for the entire winter. It was like minus 20 degrees for like a long period. Anyway, that storm caused major, major problems for a bunch of massive companies in the United States. And when that happened, a lot of them knew about us and a lot of them knew that we had technology wow. that was really cool and could do some really cool stuff for them. And what they all had in common was they all drove trucks or, or hired logistical operations like trans, they were all transportation related. It's like, you cannot transport stuff when it's negative 10 degrees outside, right? For days and days and days and days and days. So we literally had, um, we had $4 billion companies all call us up, within a three month period and say, if you can solve the weather when it comes to logistics, we'll pay you X. And X was like wow. a big number, right? So we actually pivoted the whole company from storm pulse to what we call risk pulse. And we actually changed everything to be about logistics. So suddenly, you know, yeah, it's one thing to get the weather, but like, we're gonna basically solve this really complicated problem of like, if you're shipping a truck full of, you know, beer or mayonnaise, or something else delicious down the road and a storm's coming, like we're going to tell you if your truck's going to be late or not. And we're going to tell you if you need to do something different or not. So we, we, we made it a logistics company at that point um, because we had feedback from like $4 billion companies. Now what happened, nature took care of the consolidation part for us, right? Like <laughs> it basically said like, I'm going to enter the scene. And when I do, like everybody's going to have the same problem at the same time. And that allowed us to finally kind of bundle together demand so that we could just focus on one thing for like a nice group of customers. So we started out with okay. five enterprise customers for that business and then kept growing it. Right. So now over 400 companies use that solution, wow. but we started with five. And so yeah. then, so then storm pulse, um, did it, was it still running as a separate 
uh, product or, or you, you shut that, shut that down? Uh, I was still running as a separate product. Yeah. Um, we did not really shut it. It took, you know, over the course of years, we shut it down. Um, and we still had subscribers for it. So the subscribers kept their subscriptions. Okay. Uh, we shut down the free version. You know, we shut down the consumer version, all that stuff went away and we just focused on, you know, basically logistical, logistical problems. Okay. Okay, man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's just, that's just, that's awesome. Okay. So, uh, this thing is growing. It's, it's, very successful. Why? And like, at what point did you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to go start something new. I'm going to start some SaaS. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I got to the point where I was doing a lot of enterprise sales and I got to the point where I realized like, I'm good at enterprise sales, frankly, but, um, I'm, but it's very draining. Like, to be honest, it's very draining. Like I don't get energized by it. I get, I get emptied by it. And doing that for six years just took a personal toll on me. That was like, I just don't, I just don't want to do this anymore. Right. And so it was very difficult because like as a CEO of that company, you have to sell, like it's not optional. Um, and so I, I basically realized like I need to find somebody else to do this job because, you know, back to the family, like my family's growing up. At this point, my daughter's, my daughter who was one when I started this idea yeah. is now is now 14. So if I wanna spend time with my daughter before she goes to college, like I need to stop traveling as much. I need to stop working as much hours, right? And I need to be home and I need to change things around somehow. And that's, that's really what kind of crystallized for me was really on a personal level. I'm happy to continue this. I have to run and take someone lunch. <laughs> we'll be very sad if I don't. So uh, do you want to pick this up again? And Yeah, no, that's totally okay. fine. I really cool, appreciate cool. it. Okay, <laughs> okay yeah, right. no problem, man. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, all right. So that was my conversation with Matt Wensing. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. I've already re-listened to it a couple of times and, and, and stuff keeps popping out. I'm going to release a second part to this in a couple of weeks where we talk about SimSass and his experience at Tiny Seed. But make sure that you check out simsass.co and follow Matt on Twitter. It's at Matt Wensing. And last but not least, make sure that you check out Matt's podcast, Out of Beta. Finally, I would love to get your feedback on the podcast. Uh, you can you can tweet tweet at me at at getting to ramen or DM me. Have a good one. Peace. Peace and love. Stay golden, pony boy. Um, that that's a reference from from an '80s movie. Just so that no one was offended by that.